It is Wednesday, November 22nd, and this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I am your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. On today's show, we talk with Democratic candidate for Congress in the 8th District, Toby Whitney. We also chat with Summer Stinson. She is the president of Washington's Paramount Duty, and she joins us to help make sense of the recent McCleary Supreme Court decision. And then we talk with Kat Martin about a tax bill protest happening on Monday, November 27th. All that, and we have our Indivisible member profile. Toby Whitney is a Democratic candidate running for Congress in the 8th Congressional District, and he joins me now. Toby Whitney, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. So uh, I want to start, well, first of all, just to ask you, how are things going out there for you? Are you feeling uh, feeling good about things? Things are going well. I, I feel good about how the race is going uh, with my team and also how the field is going. I think that we've got good candidates. I think that the off-year election being done uh, has... Uh, kind of cleared the media waves a little bit, um, especially locally, so that there's more attention being paid to this now. And uh, I think things are going to heat up. Are you finding any uh, residual excitement left over from the uh, the off-year election? <laughs> People got really excited. I mean, it was a huge blue wave. No, there's a, there's a lot of bleacher foot stomping, and uh, there's, there's absolutely a fair amount of positive energy. There's a kick in people's step. There are other metaphors. It's, a, it's going really well. People are, people are happy. People see some turning of the, of the tide that was uh, uh, concerning them so much. Uh, How are and, you seeing that? Are you feeling optimistic that the tide, the tide is beginning to turn? Well, I think that uh, Democrats uh, were uh, on their heels a little bit. Uh, a lot a bit even uh, <laughs> over the last year. I think they were su- obviously very surprised. Uh, and I think that they feel that they're remaking their argument. I think they're thinking about their argument in terms of values. I think they're being a little more, they're being self-reflective about how we got into this situation. Yeah. And so, um, uh, which means that, you know, it's not the voters' fault that they chose somebody else last November. It's it's we've got to remake that case. Uh, I often say that if there's a working class person or middle class person in this country who doesn't know that the Democrats are entirely on their side, then we've got work to do. Well, I want to get into some of those values and issues that you see as as being uh, democratic, uh, and I'll do that in a second. But I want to start by talking about your background and also your reason for running. Um, so after college, you worked for the Congressional Budget Office. Uh, yeah. You came here to Microsoft in the 1990s, and you promised yourself that you would quit by the time you were 40 to pursue public service, which led you back to D.C. for a time. Uh, what prompted you to make that promise to yourself? Was it family? How did, how did you come to, to that promise? Well, the, my parents were small business people. My father owned a two-bay gas station, and my mother owned a uh, landscaping business. And uh, even though they, especially my mom, uh, were relatively poor, uh, she still had a tradition in her family and a practice in her life of giving to other people. She worked for lots of causes, from helping the elderly to Planned Parenthood to the poor to raising funds for education for the disadvantaged. And so her spirit of service really rubbed off on, on me, and she made it clear to us that the, the, the purpose in life was to make the world a better place, and you found it. Nice. And... Uh, that was an early lesson. It was a simple lesson. Uh, she passionately believed it. Uh, she was a courageous person. And uh, working to build things, I'm an engineer by practice and trade, you know, and I, I build things for a living, whether it's products at Microsoft or now Amazon that many listeners would be familiar with, um, or restoring houses. I like to swing a hammer. I like to build stuff. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I do all day long. I, res- I review Java code and web stuff. Uh, but while I think a lot of the users like what we build, um, and you're, you're talking not, about your work with Amazon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't. I it's it's. I think that you can do much better work with public service in terms of actually helping people who really need it, and uh, that was my drive. And also, it's just more uh, satisfying as a as a person to go out there and really um, uh, 
tilt the tables a little bit more in the favor of people who need it. And uh, especially working in Congress for what I did when I did, which was in the wake of the financial collapse in 2008, uh, turning the economy around, uh, fixing and addressing the banking system problems, trying to save people's homes, trying to make sure that unemployment insurance lasted for long enough for them to actually keep their homes and keep food on the table. It was really satisfying. And so, uh, well, that's kind of unique. Yeah. Your unique uh, selling point, isn't it? The fact that you bring a little bit from both worlds. You bring a little bit from the political world. You bring a little bit from the business world. Yeah, uh, I am a private sector guy by uh, by what I've done with my most of my time. I was doing payroll for my mom when I was twelve years old, and I build businesses for these for these tech companies. Uh, but I have also done public service several times, the Budget Office, the Ways and Means Committee, where you do tax and trade bills right. and social safety net stuff like foster kids and Medicare and Social Security. And uh, and then also being a legislative director for one of the members of the delegation here in Washington State. So Yeah, you worked for Jim McDermott, right? I did. I worked for the then dean of the delegation, the longest serving member, uh, the congressman from Seattle for a little over four years. That's great. Well, so, you know, you spoke at a town hall in Wenatchee on uh, the 13th, and you spoke very eloquently about the problem of lobbying in Washington, D.C. as being one of your reasons for running. So for those who weren't there, uh, can you just briefly rehash your remarks? Can you just kind of encapsulate the the problem of lobbying for us a little bit? Yeah. So uh, in the private sector, you're – you know, in, in business, you sit around a table with your colleagues and you work out a problem. You have kind of a common goal. And uh, you usually make decisions based on data and kind of a shared understanding of problems. And you make choices and, it's, and you make progress. Uh, that is not how Congress works. And I'm not naive, but when I got back to Congress and, you know, I've been in business for quite a while. When I got back there in 2009... Uh, I would regularly see, um, at, in this, especially in the beginning of the day, these long lines of people standing outside the buildings waiting to get through all the security gates. And uh, you would find that 90% of the people in line, if there are 60, 70 people in line, that 55, 65 of those people were just corporate lobbyists. And uh, as a staffer who used to take those meetings and be on the, being on the other side of the table, you know, the the corporate lobbyists uh, come in with a an association head, a lobbyist, uh, folks from uh, the industry that they're representing, say uh, the restaurant or whoever it is, uh, and then they bring in studies and they have proposed language and they have proposed talking points and they have a prepared speech, and they have a whole package, and it's and that's what you face in that meeting. And in the next meeting, uh, you see the same thing six or seven times a day, maybe eight, nine, or ten. Wow. Uh, and and once or twice a day, you'll have a meeting with people who uh, have two people. They may have a single study with them and a request for you to sign on to a bill or for the member to sign on to a bill. And they are representing food stamps or early childhood education. Right. Well, or, so how do you balance the skills there? Well, you have to balance it by keeping your perspective. Um, and so if you're getting nine voices that say one that are asking for tax breaks for corporations or for name that special interest and one that's fighting for people who are disadvantaged or who haven't had lots of luck in their lives, you have to just keep your perspective. You can't – you can try to draw more people into the door to lobby their government and make their case. But uh, the – it is fine for corporations to make their case and to teach you about their industry. It's incredibly important actually because you can't be an expert in everything and you don't know sure. the difference. But you, you can't go in there and, and know – everything about everything. So you, you need businesses to come in and tell you what's going on in whatever their industry is. But you're saying there's a limit, obviously. Well, I think that lobbying is one thing. It's the money that chases it then, which is the problem or the bigger problem. And they don't just come in with tons and tons of people and have uh, most of the – and dominate most of your day. It's that there's also the fundraisers that happen afterwards and the money that it that that accompanies or comes in lockstep with legislation. And so I think that's the way the thing that people feel is people feel that Congress is uh, being bought. And um, 
that's a dis- that's a discouraging thing to see that there's so much money in DC that it really distorts the debate I think and I think that people feel like they should have an equal voice as um in, as um uh special interests the private equity people in on Wall Street for instance and they don't because private equity equity donates a lot of money and ordinary people And so you're saying then as a legislator, if you're uh, elected, that you would be able to keep perspective uh, in terms of balancing that out? Uh, I would never let that become normal in my – as a a member. I wouldn't – and I wouldn't – I I would be pushing back very hard to hear the voices of people who really need help uh, and not let any decision-making happen because of donations or money. And I think that's the thing that concerns me the most. So without getting too into the weeds, what are a couple of things that you would change about the House version of this bill? So I would – there wouldn't just be two things I would change. I would tear it up and start over, which is not a hard thing to do. You just take the piece of paper and throw it in the garbage. <laughs> and you start with a blank page again, and I would change the principal – so that the goal is to raise middle class wages first. How do you make sure that people's take-home paychecks get larger for the bottom 80% of earners in the country? And that is purely a math problem. Uh, How do you change taxes that are taken out of people's paychecks so that they go up? And so there are several taxes that are taken out of people's paychecks. And I don't mean tax credits or other kind of ways to get people's money eventually into people's pockets. You're talking specifically taking less money. I mean, I mean changing the rates of, um, of FICA and Medicare taxes and, uh, and the actual tax rates for individuals and reducing them and making it more progressive. So keep it revenue neutral, but mm-hmm. make, the, make the progression more steep so that people in the middle class and the lower middle class, the bottom 80 percent of wagers in the country, so that it goes up. And this um, is something that Congress can do. It just yes. requires political will. Yeah. I mean, this is just a question of what your goal is. If your goal is to lower corporate tax rates, uh, then you at least they have chosen to take from individuals, from from you and me and, all, and, and many other people. Um, but I would change it so that it raises wages. I would make sure that a second principle would be simplicity to get rid of loopholes. If you want to lower tax rates, I would just do a dollar-for-dollar dollar closing of corporate loopholes. Let's take the $21 billion that is given to the oil industry um, in every cycle and lower the rates by that and lower the rates by that much. Get rid of carried interest for private equity uh, folks on Wall Street and lower the rates by that much. And you can get the rate down into the 20s. They choose not to do that. And so get rid of, uh, I like car racing is fine, I guess, but get rid of the NASCAR tax break. Tell us what the NASCAR tax break is. Oh, I think they've got something like a, I, uh, you'll have to check the number on me, but I think it's about $700 million a year that they can take, um, that they are allowed to take in tax breaks for the running of NASCAR races. Wow. Okay. That definitely sounds like a uh, red state giveaway for I, sure. I, there's uh, car racing is fine, like, you know, so people can enjoy it. <laughs> but I don't. But it, it has. I mean, there are about seventy of these uh, kind of like targeted tax breaks for name that industry. Sure. Um, there are a few I would keep. Like uh, I would like to keep things like uh, research and development, green energy. I think there are two or three of them that we should keep, maybe four or five. But in general, I think that most of these 70 big tax breaks should go away. Right. Uh, let's shift over and talk about health care, uh, which is also timely because uh, we just learned on uh, Tuesday that the GOP Senate is adding a repeal of the ACA mandate to their tax bill. So it's all kind of interwoven there. Uh, you see on your webpage that you are for health care for everyone, not just access, but actually having it. So when you say that, are, are you meaning a Medicare for all type system? So – I think that making Medicare an option for people to buy into at any age is a fantastic um, path towards simplifying our system. Uh, I do have some concerns about forcing everybody, the 80% of Americans who don't have Medicare, onto it on a very quick schedule uh, because changing healthcare is a very jarring experience. And when you change healthcare, it always changes the, pl- the, the benefits that you get. Um, and we know that that really upsets people. So I would rather have the 
opt-in for Medicare be something that is available to all and and voluntary? And I think that a lot of people would switch because of the, the simplicity of it. People like Medicare. It works. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the the even higher goal than simplifying how we pay for it, which is what Medicare for all is, uh, and uh, reducing the private sector role in healthcare, which is the other thing that Medicare for all is, is making sure that everybody is covered, it is portable, can never be taken away, and answers kind of the question I often get asked, why, what is wrong with our healthcare system? And I think the primary problem with our healthcare system is that we actually have to worry about it. Um, or, or that people should not have to worry about whether or not they do or do not have a plan, whether they are or not covered for all of the basics. Uh, and so I think that the first thing we need to do is make sure that everybody is covered. And I think simplifying our system and making it results-oriented as opposed to number of procedures-oriented are the three largest ones that you changes that you could make that would really untie this knot for the country. The next would be reducing costs, drug prices, devices, and um, uh, technologies. There's a lot of cost stuff we can do. We can probably cut our health costs by forty percent or even more, and still have the same outcomes. I want to talk jobs and job creation. Uh, you've said that you think that trade agreements should create American jobs. What sort of jobs are we talking about? I mean, most people, when they hear that, think of manufacturing jobs, but that's not the core sector of the 8th District, right? There is manufacturing in the 8th District. In in Auburn, there are 5,500 Boeing workers. Um, I think that you want to have a diverse economy, small businesses, medium businesses, uh, large ones across multiple industries, banking, manufacturing, agriculture and farming, sure. uh, tourism. So I think you want to make sure that uh, when people in the 8th District have a business that uh, folds or moves, that they have lots of options so that they don't have to move too and they can sustain the same income or jump onto another ladder. And I think that's what you want when you're talking about creating jobs is you want there to be diversity in your economy and you want people to be mobile to change jobs if they need to. And when we talk about trade agreements creating jobs, trade agreements from our perspective, from an American perspective, should, especially for our 8th district, should supercharge exports. One of the big reasons why exports are so concentrated in large companies is because only large companies have the reach of finding new customers and having the big relationships that are overseas and putting employees overseas to go make right. both sides of that transaction work. We do have uh, trade uh, assistance programs for small and medium-sized business- businesses. I just think that we should be much, much better at at those. I think we should supercharge them so that small and medium-sized businesses can export more. I think that And I'll just sh- ask you, how do you do that legislatively? Oh, it's mostly about funding and focus. Right now, those programs exist, but they don't have enough outreach in them. You mm. can go as a small business down to an office in Seattle or Tacoma, which is where the offices are, and you can go and start trying to find Uh, customers in China who will buy your products. But you need a lot more support than that. You need to do trade delegations. You need help with communications. You need help with marketing. You need support so that you can go find customers overseas who will buy your stuff. Did you support the TPP? I did not support the TPP. Uh, I worked in Congress then. I wrote... No, I mean you personally. Yeah, no, I I don't personally support the TPP as, as it was written. I think that we should have a an agreement with the countries in Asia that uh, enables us to have a long-term relationship with them that really benefits the United States and binds them into a relationship with us rather than having China write the rules. I do believe in that formula. So I do think we should have a trade agreement. I just think we need labor and environment chapters that are 21st century that are progressive and that help American jobs and the economic diversity of our country. Right now, that agreement was uh, too old school and the labor and environment chapters didn't go far enough. And I 
watched those. I read them. Uh, I wrote analyses of them, and it just didn't go far enough. And we talked about everything from access to medicines to textiles in Vietnam to and all the textile companies we have around here, Mountain Safety Research, REI, uh, and what could be done. And this just wasn't progressive enough. Okay. You know, I wasn't planning on asking about this, but it it's it's become unavoidable. And so I do want to ask you about your stance on guns, gun mm-hmm. safety. Sure. Um, I, I'll just ask you flat out, how would you legislate for gun safety? Most Americans believe in responsible gun ownership. Uh, we have a single variable in this country that makes our country stand out as having a, a vast number of more of um, uh, of mass shootings than any other country. And it is, it is the proliferation of guns into the hands of people who uh, don't, who shouldn't have them. Uh, I grew up in a family that was a hunting family. We had a freezer off the kitchen, a second freezer that was only for deer and duck. And that's because we went hunting every fall. Uh, my father went hunting every fall. And th- it was just a part of our lives. Uh, I used to get my marksman first class, marksman second class when I was six or seven years old in the 70s. And the NRA used to be a mostly an educational organization. Yeah. Now it has become obviously something entirely different than that. And it's controlled by the gun companies that are making a lot of money and they want and they 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 marshal fear in the in the American public to promote to drive sales of their product. Most people, though, I believe, are common sense about wanting gun legislation that does all of the major pieces of background checks and no fly list pr- prohibitions and requiring training and keeping military style weapons off the streets. And that is a, a, a large, probably the largest single thing we can do to help reduce violence, though not the only thing we can do to the incredible amount of 37,000 gun deaths a year we have in this country, of which a little less than half are just plain old gun violence as opposed to suicides right. and accidents and so on. Right. So I want to talk about our district, the 8th District. Uh, it has been gerrymandered, as we know, to be a GOP safe seat. Um, again, at the candidate forum, you talked about it being a bridge between the east and west side. Mm-hmm. So, and you've touched on some of these already, but what are some of the issues that you think appeal to both progressives as well as independent voters in, in the 8th District? So uh, I think that progressives and independents both care about the environment. I think they both care about educating their kids in a way that they feel good about and high quality education. I think they both care about the uh, dignity of retirement and dignity. I think they all care about health care. In the kitchen table issues, Americans, whether they live in rural areas, urban or suburban areas, they care about the same things and they share a lot more than um, our current media culture would have us believe. So the the uh, rural towns out, you know, Kashmir and Wenatchee and Vantage, uh, they have uh, they do have some different concerns around water and farming, and they viewed immigration uh, not in opposites but differently. Um, uh, farm workers in temporary visas versus H-1B visas for tech sure, workers. Yeah. So uh, they view it differently, but they all believe in reasonable solutions to problems that are um, practical. Uh, so I think they agree on much more than they would disagree. The people in my, in my neighborhood up uh, Snoqualmie Pass and in Easton, they love our national forests absolutely as much as the people down in Auburn and in Issaquah. Uh, but they also – it's part of their business. They run those tourism industries. They they care about also you know reasonable use. And the people in Issaquah and Auburn too also, but they're using them differently. People in Issaquah don't have too many snowmobiles. snowmobiles. The people up in my neighborhood live on them in the, in the winter. Sure. So uh, I think there are smaller differences, but I don't think they're at the core issues. And uh, 
and so this this bridge is that one of the things you heard about the election of Trump Clinton was this suburban urban and rural divide this divide in between that's the, the narrative yeah. that is the storyline and our district really combines them in a i think a wonderful way that's important and we sh- need to have a um uh a proving ground that you can have a practical set of solutions in a mixed district so the, your likely Republican opponent is going to be uh, Dino Rossi. He's the only candidate in the field right now who has held elected office. Uh, Issaquah City Councilman Toa Martz uh, dropped out uh, a little while ago. He has name recognition for a lot of people in the district. Um, he has a lot of negatives as well. Uh, how do you run against Dino Rossi if, in fact, he is the Republican candidate? Well, Dino has... Uh, the advantage of name recognition and the disadvantage of name recognition. The disadvantage is that he can't redefine himself from being anything but a uh, Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, uh, um, conservative Republican. Uh, When it comes to how I would match up against him, I think about having a strong progressive record, but also a, a, a long background in business that certainly is equal to his. And so if you were to put us in front of a business community and they didn't know our backgrounds, I'm sure that I would do quite well in that debate. And I would really enjoy that debate. I would really look forward to that. <laughs> uh, Republicans are often thought of as having a big advantage on national security. I was a national security professional in Congress. Uh, I have – and when I worked at Microsoft when I ran parts of Windows security. So I have been working on national security issues and issues of uh, uh, threats to the well-beings of Americans for a long time from working on issues of North Korea and South Korea uh, – to issues of terrorist financing, to the threats to our environment and what that means to lots of countries around the globe, including, of course, ours. Uh, I worked on these issues in Congress quite a bit, and that was part of my responsibility. So I take it very seriously, and I think that there would be no Republican advantage there. And so I am very comfortable with um, how... I would match up with him on those two. And probably a third one would be the budget and the deficit. As you you talked about in your your intro, my first job out of college was working for the Congressional Budget Office. And it's because I cared about the responsible financing of our government to provide services for people who needed them. And that I really believed when I was a teenager and I started caring about this stuff and out of college when I got to work on it myself, that there is a great balance to be struck there if we just put our minds to it. And so uh, he is a uh, uh, tax cuts to that expand the deficit kind of guy. And I am not. I am a responsible budget progressive. And I, you know, passionately look forward to that debate. You know, you mentioned uh, North Korea in the context of discussing your national security experience. We're some by some estimates within the striking distance of of North Korea. Yeah. How do you approach that problem in your mind? Uh, I have been to South Korea and up to the DMZ and uh, to the demilitarized zone in mm-hmm. between. That's about 35, 40 miles north of Seoul. And I've been briefed by their chief national security advisor on the subject of North Korea. Fascinating briefings. It's important to understand what their goals are, which is – and their their high-order goal is to preserve their you know, kind of extreme um, uh, regime. And when they feel threatened, uh, I think that they are not particularly rational and I think that they feel like uh, they would rather lose it all than lose the regime they have. So – they are going to – and they have accumulated about 60 uh, – enough material for 60 warheads. And now they're working on perfecting a delivery system. So uh, I think we move to containment. Um, what does that look like? For you? 
So containment means disabling their ability to perfect their system to giving them no reason to use them because they already have them to, and I don't, there seems to be some formula on the, on, in the Trump world that antagonizing them gets you somewhere. And I don't know in any human relationship, whether it's at work, at home or anywhere, or in the geopolitical uh, arena where that works. Well, that's because you're an adult. You're, well, <laughs> you're, it, you're a grown up. It just, uh, there's just no example of it working. I think if you guarantee to somebody, I, I do f- believe that um, a good military is a great deterrent. You don't want to fight with somebody that you know you're going to lose. But you, that's, when, but that's a first strike concept. I think poking somebody a lot is not necessary. And he seems to be on this. And I, I, I wish he wasn't. I think it was predictable, but here we are. So uh, I think that you drop the Trump policy like a hot rock and you actually employ people in the State Department. And that would be nice. Yeah. <laughs> you employ people in the State Department and you communicate clearly and firmly. And I think one of the one of the really deeply sad things uh, that I experience when I go uh, back to D.C. from time to time is that thoughtful people who are smart about their topic, whether they're on the right or left, um, all of that expertise, which which has made us rich, even if our economy doesn't work for nearly enough people, we still are quite prosperous. We still mm-hmm. have uh, a university system. We still have so many things that are going well in this country, though we need to fix this economy working for everybody as our primary goal. Understood. That, that, the, that a lot of the expertise that we have in, in our government is being tossed away in the name of disruption. Uh, and uh, it's a it's both it's a throwing away of our advantage. It's a throwing away of some of our national assets. And these people who worked to contain the North Korea problem as much as possible for the last 20 to 30 years uh, have been swept aside in the name of a kind of a chest poking um, ignorance that is, uh, well, I, I think the estimation right now is that we're somewhere between, I think Brennan the former national security advisor said that and uh, chair of the CIA said that we're 20 to 25 percent chance of getting into an armed conflict with North Korea right now, which is that's the red zone. And that's and we don't need to be here. So one last question, um, even though you have said on the record that you don't think that money wins campaigns, mm. campaigns cannot function without it. Yes. So uh, you need money. You need yeah. volunteers. Yeah. Uh, how can people volunteer? Where can they get involved? Oh, they can just uh, – going to my website uh, is the easiest way to do it, tobywhitneyforcongress.com. Donate, volunteer, hands uh, on deck, boots on the ground. This is how we win elections. We have a great opportunity to win this election. Um, and as long as we field the right candidate and execute a good strategy, uh, we'll have a Democrat in this office in a year. Toby Whitney, thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. Summer Stinson is the president of Washington's Paramount Duty, an organization dedicated to compelling the state to amply fund public education. And we have asked her on today to help unpack the details of the most recent decision in the state Supreme Court's McCleary ruling. Summer Stinson, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Of course. So before we jump into the details about the most recent ruling that came down on November 15th, first, tell us a little bit about Washington's Paramount Duty and what it does. Uh, Washington's Paramount Duty is a grassroots group of parents and public school supporters who advocate to the state and uh, to amply fund our public school system. And by the state, we do mean that we have um, gone to all three branches of government, uh, the legislative uh, body, and speak a lot with legislators and also testify at numerous hearings on uh bills regarding funding education, and we advocate specifically for funding, uh, amply funding public schools with progressive new equitable revenue. And we also advocate to the Supreme Court through uh, amicus briefs and to the governor. We've um, met with the governor's staff and get public school advocates to email and write into the governor. 
Yeah, I should mention that you yourself are an attorney and that Washington's paramount duty is not your full-time job. You are special regional counsel and special assistant U.S. attorney for the Social Security Administration. So you're used to filing briefs and working with the government, I would imagine. Yes, I do keep those uh, two roles uh, completely separate uh, because uh, because I have to, of course. <laughs> ethically. And so uh, I am, in my day job, I work for the federal government and am a lawyer for the federal government. So who better to ask about a, a government case like McCleary? Um, this is a case that uh, originally uh, began in 2007, and the Washington uh, State Supreme Court ruled on it in 2012 to say that the state was not spending enough money to cover basic education costs. If you can just give us a little bit of historical perspective, why was the original case brought and who was it brought by? The original case was brought by a few families, including the McCleary family, which is why we call it the McCleary case, and a, a huge coalition or consortium of uh, public school advocates, which included many school districts, uh, Washington State PTA, um, many different uh, civil rights organizations, uh, and the Washington Education Association. And I think there, I think there's actually hundreds in this uh, coalition that all are under the umbrella of the Network for Excellence in Washington Schools, or abbreviated to NEWS. Okay. Um, Network for Excellence in Washington Schools, and they uh, brought the case as plaintiffs. And the case actually went to trial. So there was a, at least five years invested in the case before the Supreme Court ruled, and the decision came down from the Supreme Court in 2012. And so at the trial, there were numerous witnesses um, from school districts, from the state, um, teachers, etc discussing um, both school funding on a kind of macro level, but then also how did that, what did the results look like in schools? What was actually happening to the schools? What were kids seeing? What were parents seeing in the schools? And um, was that funding ample? Our Washington Constitution has a unique requirement across the entire 50 states that the state is... um, must make the ample must make ample provision for our public school system what we call basic education so is the court case in any way attempting to redefine what constitutes a basic public education in the state that's an interesting question because the court case is truly about the ample funding of public schools however in 2009 the legislature enacted a basic basic education bill, and they redefined themselves um, both the funding mechanisms and some of the uh, requirements regarding basic education. And so there's the standards that need to be met, um, and it's the opportunity for every child to be able to learn rather than the guarantee that every child will learn, um, which, of course, then calls the question of, you know, is that truly equitable and are we really funding to try to reduce the opportunity gap? Um, But that's how the legislature has currently defined basic education. And the court, the Supreme Court, because they were, when they reviewed the case and decided the case, they had the opportunity, opportunity to review the 2009 legislation And then there was also little legislation or some more legislation in 2010, and they are together the basic education bills, and they were 2261 and 2776, and that is what the Supreme Court reviewed, that those parameters or those promises, if you will, on here's how the legislature intends to deliver um, basic education, which is rather an amorphous term, a large sure. term in the in the Constitution, and here's how they're going to actually deliver that to school systems, uh, to school districts. Well, you know, it's very interesting to see this sort of dynamic play out between the state and the courts. Uh, and so let's talk about this most recent ruling by the state Supreme Court, which came down on November 15th. Uh, the court issued a 48-page ruling. Can, can you just bullet point some of it for us? Yes. 
So the, and, and what you said about the Supreme Court and uh, the legislature interacting is, is, is really key because what the Supreme Court had done is accept much of the legislature's premise in the bills or premises in the bills, uh, the basic education bills and their debt funding deadline. Right. And, and much of what the ruling said was that the state was in compliance, right? Well, that was a little different this time. So before they had, the Supreme Court had intimated that the basic education bills would likely be full funding, but hadn't ruled on that yet, hadn't actually made that decision. Um, and then, but what they did was they accepted the legislature's deadline of September 1st, 2018. And year after year, the Supreme Court asked for an update. How's it going? Uh, what are you going to do to get it fully funded? Because there's also a ramping up process, as the legislature has always said, to enable to have them collect the funds, the revenue, and get them um, dispersed correctly to school districts. And the state made the argument year after year, hey, we need this time to ramp up or we need this time to make decisions. And the Supreme Court kept saying, hey, you're getting closer, you're getting closer, we're getting nervous, um, you still don't have a full plan, right. and you set your own deadline of September 1st, 2018. And then this past year, the legislature at the last minute <laughs> decided to make a lot of changes to those um, 2009-2010 basic education bills. And without public hearing on many of those changes, uh, in the last 36 hours before the state was set to shut down, they enacted a new funding plan for schools and identified uh, a source of revenue, which was partly levy swap, mostly levy swap, um, and a property tax increase across the state. And they essentially tried to deliver that to the Supreme Court, but with a new deadline of 2019. And kind of appallingly <laughs> argued that they didn't have enough time. The state was arguing that they didn't have enough time to the Supreme Court to enact all these changes and get the revenue to the schools and to the school system. Even though the deadline was self-imposed. Even though the deadline was self-imposed and even though they kept telling the court, we got plenty of time, we got plenty of time, back off. <laughs> well, so it's my understanding that much of the ruling shows the state being in compliance with things like class size reduction, student transportation. Uh, you mentioned revenue as being something that it seems like the court kind of punted on because they said that that was contingent on state property tax. Where specifically is the state falling short in compliance? Most specifically with the amount, it's $1 billion short in this current biennium and that they're not going to meet the 2018 deadline. And that billion dollars goes specifically to teachers and staff salaries, correct? That's, yes. Uh, that is where they are short. Um, however, what happens is when the state is short and gives the school districts uh, less, less of an amount than they really need to actually run the school system, the school districts try to, try to figure out how to make up those funds as they can. Um, there's some restrictions on some categories uh, of how they spend the funds, and those have also changed with the new, uh, the new law, 2242. Well, so how do schools make up the shortfall? Well, right now they've been using uh, many schools that can pass levies, and this is not all school districts. We live in a very um, diverse state, and, you know, we have a very, very large school district, Seattle Public Schools, and then we have some school districts that are very small. So not all school districts um, have the same opportunities to raise their own funds. But right now with levies, some school districts are able to um, pass levies and get more funding that way. Um, some school districts are able to get some capital funds to build or improve their schools through bonds, but bonds require 60% to pass, and they also have a minimum threshold that have to vote in an election in order for the uh, bond to pass. So right now, school districts are relying heavily on levies if they have them. And then the state also has a levy equalization account um, 
that tries to help some uh, property poor or, or districts that don't have a lot of property um, to be able to tax um, to raise their own levies or their own bonds. So if the state remains out of compliance, what will the court do to remedy that? Well, and actually the court can't remedy the situation um, because only the legislature can appropriate funds. So hmm. the court can't go in and say, we're going to appropriate the funds because you haven't done so. So what the court can do and what the court's already done is what's called sanctions. They can say that the uh, state is out of compliance because the legislature hasn't appropriated the funds. And right now, the state is um, being sanctioned, fined, $100,000 a day. Where does that money go? Well, the legislature is supposed to partition off that money and put it into an account for public schools, for basic education. They have not done so, which is another bone of contention with the Supreme Court. And so the Supreme Court has told the legislature that they have this regular session coming up, which starts early January until March 2018, to be able to appropriate the missing $1 billion, roughly $1 billion, towards public schools to hit public school systems, uh, public school districts in in September 1st, 2018. And so what will Washington's paramount duty be doing to get involved with this fight? We have already met with legislators since the ruling came out last Wednesday, uh, November 15th, and we have been advocating that they not use rainy day funds, that they find a progressive source of revenue, meaning that it is not hitting our lowest income earners or our working families, um, that the people who can afford to pay, who do not pay their fair share in Washington state, um, those companies and those individuals, that they pay into the system in order to support our education system and be able to produce um, citizens, activists, uh, participation in democracy, and participation in our economy, and be hired by the very companies who are here in Washington state. Yeah, you would want to see, or you'd think that they would want to see investment at that level. It makes uh, makes good sense. Yeah. Well, Summer Stinson, I want to say thank you so much for helping us untangle a a very complicated issue, and also thank you uh, for all the work that you and your organization do. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. So before we go this week, we will be foregoing our call to action and we'll instead talk with the wonderful Cat Martin about a sit-in that is happening in Seattle this Monday, the 27th, in protest of the GOP tax bill. Hey, Cat, thanks for joining us. Howdy, Stefan. So tell us the plan. Uh, those of us who live in a blue state maybe feel like we're at a loss right now as to what to do about this tax bill. Uh, and I know that the GOP is planning on voting in, on it as soon as Monday. Both of our senators, Patty Murray and Maria Cantwell, are against this tax bill and have spoken out against it. So given all that, what is the plan for this event? First of all, where is it going to be? It's going to be at the federal building on Monday at 11 a.m. Uh, if you don't know where that is, that's at 915 Second Avenue. All right, cool. And so what will folks be doing there? Well, it's going to be cold and wet and rainy. So rather than sitting in, which implies an active protest against uh, uh, something happening inside a facility, we'd like to show our senators that we really have their back. So we're going to stand in solidarity. And if there are enough of us, and we certainly hope there will be, we're going to circle the federal building, linking arms, demonstrating that... The Trump tax scam is going to hurt our friends, our families, and our country. And we're just not going to let that happen without a fight. I understand that you're also planning on presenting the senator's offices with constituent letters, right? Yeah, we plan on sharing stories. Um, So we're asking people to send in the photos and stories of people who will be impacted by the Trump tax scam. This is actually one of their most powerful tools as they argue on our behalf in Congress. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great way to be a part of this. So if people are listening and they are, say, not close to Seattle, 
uh, here in Washington, or, and I know we have people listening all across the country, if they are looking to see if there is a rally that might be close to them, uh, where can they find that information? I know that this is happening very last minute, and a lot of that is in response to the fact that, like I said, the GOP is planning on voting on this thing as soon as Monday, and they're using this weekend where everybody is kind of relaxing to strike. So where can people find information to see if there is a rally close to them? I would suggest the first place they should look is TrumpTaxScam.org, the Indivisible site. We will also post on our event page on Facebook as many rallies as we can identify. Excellent. All right. I will put all of that information on the SoundCloud page and also on the web page. And before we go, the most important question is uh, in the Seattle rally, will the Trump chicken be there? The chicken will be there. Hey, can I just add one thing? Of course. For people who can't be there, um, they can actually send in their stories in advance. We'd like to present them to, to both of our members of Congress. And so they can send in a story. And that can be anything from I have a kid in grad school who's not going to be able to deduct their their loan interest anymore to my parents are in an assisted living facility. I literally can't make it if I don't have that deduction. They can send that to taxdamopposition at gmail.com. Well, thank you for all you're doing, Kat, and uh, happy Thanksgiving. Same to you. And we will end this week with our Indivisible member profile. Hello, my name is Brenda Dijardin. I'm with the North Star Indivisible Group. I was compelled to become part of the Indivisible Movement uh, because of the terrible things that I was seeing happening with the Trump administration and basically uh, with the um, amount of power and money going to the top 1%. Uh, I started this group with my husband and a few other people as well, and we all had uh, an idea of what we wanted to do. So we got together, we got a lot of people coming in to talk about what they were afraid of, what they were uh, experiencing, and how it might affect them. And we're still plugging along, even though we're dealing with fatigue, we are still there and going strong and writing and calling. Um, So keep at it, don't lose faith. Um, I joined because I care. My name is Brenda D. Jardin, and that's why I'm part of Indivisible. And that will do it for this week's show. Uh, actually, I, I fibbed a little. I, I do have a call to action, and that is to try to take a mental health break this weekend, if you can. Uh, I know that Thanksgiving will be a challenging time for many of you with let's say, politically mixed families. So uh, for those of you who will be facing that, I wish you patience and fortitude. Uh, But for the rest of the weekend, maybe take a little time for yourself away from the internet, away from the news, away from, uh, dare I say, this podcast. Uh, I am planning on unplugging a little, and I hope that you can too. We got a lot of work to do in the coming weeks, months, and even years ahead. You know, a marathon and not a sprint and all of that. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. The executive producer is Aaron Albanese. Thank you again to Toby Whitney, Summer Stinson, and Kat Martin. I will also say in closing that I am almost inexpressibly thankful for my amazing wife, my wonderful parents, all of my friends and my community. And I am most certainly grateful to you for listening. Oh, and by the way, the week in review is off this week. We will be back with that on December 1st. Have a great Thanksgiving, and we'll see you next week. Bye.